How's it going, everyone? Welcome to the Where Are We Going Today podcast, where we can now be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and iHeart. If you're interested in hearing more, including photos and other commentary, you might also follow the Where Are We Going Today pages on Facebook and Instagram. So now let's take a few moments to put aside our worries, our concerns, our anticipations, our feelings, our perspectives, our thoughts, and instead try to channel our awareness, focus our attention on our breathing, or on some other movement of our body. When we're sitting still, we can choose to tune in to the rising and falling movement of our stomach as we breathe in and breathe out. And as the body moves, as we walk about and do things, we can choose to focus on the movement of our feet or our legs or our arms. In a similar way, we can choose to focus on the movements of our mind as our attention shifts from one subject to another, a thought here, a feeling or reaction there, a sound. The mind goes out to see or to smell, to taste. As we cultivate this mindfulness, our only duty is to know. And so as we train the mind to know, to watch movements of the body and the mind, we begin to grow still. I met my meditation teacher a number of years ago now. Although I closely identify with the Thai forest tradition or the Thai Kamatana tradition of Theravada Buddhism, it may be a curiosity to some that my master is from Burma, from Myanmar. His teacher was an almost legendary monk called Mahasi Sayado, an enlightened master who has earned the highest reverence in Myanmar and even abroad. But although I trained under my master for quite a few years, I felt what was lacking somehow was not the training, not the necessary to-do of the practice, but a sense of context. I was well familiar and informed with the Thai forest tradition, but knew almost nothing of my master tradition. Burmese Buddhism is also 
Theravadan Buddhism, and even though Myanmar and Thailand are neighboring countries in Southeast Asia, thick jungle, rugged mountains, and centuries of discord between the two nations have led to remarkably divergent Buddhist practices. Now, fundamentally, they are indeed the same, but not entirely. And one day a few years ago, I got up the nerve to ask my master if I could interview him and write a book about his life, write his biography. I knew that he'd been working for some time, beginning at the beginning of the COVID era, on his own autobiography in the Burmese language. I understood that it was some 300 and some odd pages. He'd completed it and was in the process of translating it into Thai. He speaks nine languages. But I wondered if he'd ever get around to translating it to English. And so, as I said, I got up the nerve to approach him and ask, could I write your biography? I'd really like to know more about my master. And to my delight and surprise, he trusted me enough to agree. And thus began perhaps a year-long process of recorded weekly interviews and countless text exchanges about the ins and outs of his life. And I figured that in the process of learning about my master's life, I would have a better sense of Burmese Buddhism, the way it compares and contrasts with Thai Buddhism, and perhaps then I would be better poised to move forward and make the most of this hybridized practice of mine. So my master was born in 1947 in a village called Kunhat in Shan State, northern Myanmar. It was called Burma back then. When he was just a young boy, essentially civil war broke out in his country. This would have been the early 1950s. This is a civil war that continues to this day, and more than seven years makes this the longest ongoing civil war on the planet at present. Burma or Myanmar has a very complex cultural and political and international history, closed off to the outside world for a long, long time. Quite frankly, not much is known about the interior life of this country and its inhabitants. Well, so as I said, my master was born in a little village in the north. He described it as being a bit like Switzerland, curiously, mountainous and green with cold winters, quite beautiful from pictures I've seen and from his accounts. When he was a young man, 
or rather just a boy, he'd found himself drawn strongly to the Buddhist way of life practiced by his mother significantly and less obviously by his father. And when he became a young man, a pre-teen that is, he considered ordaining as a novice Buddhist monk something that's commonly practiced in both Thai and Burmese Buddhism. But his father discouraged him because he needed his young son's help on their tea farm. And so he chose not to take robes at that time. But eventually, at the age of about 18, he ordained as a novice monk with the vision of immediately going off to a nearby mountaintop and practicing meditation for a year. Already at that young age, he had this dream of the meditative life, though it turned out he had no idea how to meditate. His uncle was the abbot of the local monastery in Kunhat. His abbot had ordained his uncle, that is, they had ordained, he had ordained late in life, and really knew nothing about meditation, much less how to teach it. Well, my master's dreams were thwarted by the fact that although he had this vision of going off alone for this year-long mountaintop meditation, some 17 of his friends decided to ordain with him. He never found the peace and quiet he was looking for. So he stayed in the local village monastery for about a year and a half until he decided to take an opportunity to go to nearby Mandalay, a couple of hours away. His father had temporarily spent time as a monk and a monastery there, and his father's teacher was still alive and living there and welcomed him. And so my master went to Mandalay, where he was exposed to the teachings of Abhidhamma, or Abhidharma, the higher doctrine of the Buddha. He still wasn't exposed to meditation practice. He focused entirely on learning the monk way of life and learning about Abhidhamma. But being that he was accustomed to a climate that was rather Swiss, he found the oppressive heat of Mandalay too much. And so he took advantage of an opportunity to go south to the capital city of Rangoon, which today is called Yangon. He continued his studies there studying not only Abhidhamma, but the Pali language. And it wasn't but a matter of time before he happened upon an opportunity. Quite by accident, he found himself in a meditation center in the lineage of this master, Mahasi Sayadaw. When he walked in, he was utterly shocked to see hundreds of people sitting still like statues in meditation. He knew immediately, that's the life that I want. I want to learn meditation. And so just a few weeks later, he entered the monastery with the intention to spend an entire summer in intensive meditation. And so he did. It turns out he would spend two or three months 
for the next seven or so years practicing intensive meditation, those first three years under the tutelage of Mahasi Sayado himself, as well as his senior students, such as Sayado Upandita, who in time would become a highly revered, enlightened master himself. Eventually, my master became a teacher, and he taught for many years in Yangon. Somehow, word of his reputation as a good teacher, a good monk, and perhaps a good meditator reached a very famous monk in Thailand, Thailand called Ajahn Nikon. He died just a year or two ago, but at the time he had a huge following, and he wrote a letter to my master saying, I'd like to bring some of my followers with me to Burma. Would you give us a tour of the famous Buddha sites in your country? And my master agreed. So Ajahn Nikon showed up with 40 of his followers. The next year, the same request was repeated. This time, Ajahn Nikon showed up with 80 of his followers. And it was the following year that my master received another outreach from Ajahn Nikon, with whom he'd by then developed quite a nice friendship. Ajahn Nikon invited him to Thailand to be part of a ceremony. The consecration of a new Buddhist statue, I think, at a royal temple outside of Bangkok. My master, despite speaking nine languages, had never traveled abroad, and so he jumped on the opportunity. And so he went with the idea to spend a couple of months in Thailand, perhaps. But while he was there, he received word that things politically, in terms of the Civil War, had flared up significantly in Burma. He was told it wasn't safe to come home. So he decided to wander around Thailand with Ajahn Nikon, who eventually said to him, would you like to travel with me to India to visit the Buddhist holy places in the north where the Buddha lived? My master said yes. And so he joined Ajahn Nikon and his entourage on a pilgrimage to northern India. But when the pilgrimage was over, Ajahn Nikon and his people decided to return to Thailand. My master decided to stay on in India, where he wandered for a few months before finding his way to Sri Lanka. After a year or a year and a half in Sri Lanka, civil unrest broke out there as well. He needed to leave, but where could he go? Burma was still in a state of turmoil and Sri Lanka was unsafe. Through contacts, he had an opportunity to go to Australia, but before he left, a monk that he'd met in Sri Lanka, a monk from Thailand, reached out to him and said, I've been invited to America in a place called Nevada. Thai people would like to start the very first Buddhist monastery in the whole state. I'm going with an elder Thai monk who will be the abbot. And that new abbot of this brand new monastery, the first of its kind in the state, would really like to find a meditation master to help teach meditation. Well, after seven years of intensive instruction and practice of Vipassana meditation, my master accepted the invitation to be a meditation instructor in America.
And so he went to Nevada, where he began to teach not only Vipassana, insight meditation, but also Abhidhamma. His plan was to stay for five years and then head off to the jungle somewhere, perhaps in Thailand, and do a year-long solo retreat. Perhaps that very retreat he'd envisioned as a young novice. But only two years into his stay in Nevada, the elderly abbot of this new monastery in Las Vegas passed away, and the community asked the master to be the new head monk. He declined, but they insisted. And so he eventually accepted, saying, Please immediately look for my replacement. I want to go to the jungle to practice intensively. So he stayed on until he'd been in Las Vegas for five years, at which time he announced he would be stepping down as the abbot, and he was going off for his year-long retreat. And then the community spoke up and begged him to stay. They said, instead of going, how about if we rent a house just for you, and you can stay in that house for a year all by yourself, we won't bother you, We'll leave food outside your door every morning for your meal. And you can practice in that way. And so my, my master agreed not to go off to the jungle, but to instead go alone into this house for one year and practice meditation. As it turns out, one of his loyal followers, a man from Thailand, agreed to ordain with him in order to facilitate the receiving of the donated food each day. So although the community had promised him an opportunity to practice for a year all alone, it was just a few months later that there came a knock on the door asking him to come out of seclusion and resume teaching meditation and Abhidhamma. He was uninterested, but they were persuasive and so he proposed a compromise. He would teach them. And they said that they would create a brand new monastery just for him that focused on meditation. But that still required administrative duties. So as I said, he agreed to teach them and administer, run the monastery on one condition. And this was his compromise that for three months out of every single year during what's called the Wasa. It's the historic rainy season in northern India. Runs from approximately mid to late July until mid to late October each year. He would agree to run the monastery and teach the people who came as long as for three months every year they left him completely alone to practice meditation some 18 or 20 hours each and every day. And so they agreed. And in 1995 he embarked upon that practice, a practice that here 28 years later he continues each and every rainy season. 
He is a great master with much insight, not only into the Buddhist way of life, but a deeply meditative way of life. And the Thai people call him Prajan Chaya. The Burmese people call him Las Vegas Sayero. His monk name is U Zayatuta. And so when my project of researching and learning about my master's life was complete, I put together a book. Some 250 pages in length. And I self-published it with lots of photos that he shared with me from his life. And it was printed due to donations from his many lay supporters from the Burmese, Thai, Lao, and American communities in Las Vegas and elsewhere. And the book has been given away for free to anybody who would like a copy. And the book is called Las Vegas Sayero. It was a great honor to write this book for my master. It was an opportunity to reflect, remember, and acknowledge that meditation, while central and necessary to this practice and cultivation of the Buddhist path, meditation is not the only necessary component of the path. We must educate ourselves as to how to practice properly we must cultivate, cultivate generosity, develop a sense of virtue and morality. We need to learn to develop restfulness in the mind and learn to look deeply into processes of nature, of mind. Let's sit for now. <laughs> 